Hi, my name is Liz Wayne, and I'm your long-lost co-host from the PhD Biz Podcast. Welcome back. I thought we could talk about something fun, which is libraries. When I was a kid, I used to really love the library. I felt like I lived there. I went to undergrad, and I also lived in that library. And I thought, what better person to talk about libraries than the vice provost of libraries, the master of the UNC Library, Dr. Elaine Westbrook. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Really happy that you finally got to have, well, not finally, but get to have this conversation. I uh, met you on Twitter, so (laughs) Twitter friends are are, are really great. So, Dr. Westbrook, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, I called you the master of the UNC library, but I'm sure that's not your official title. Sure, yeah. My official title is vice provost of university libraries and university librarian. Mm. And what does that all mean? What does that mean you do? That means I'm responsible for the entire uh, UNC libraries system, mm-hmm. which includes nine libraries, about 300 staff, about 300 students, and over a million square feet of space. Wow. And is that just at the UNC Chapel Hill or are the other schools as well? The whole system? That's just University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Okay, great. Wow. Nine libraries. <clears throat> and I think I... I think I go to three of them. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's thirty. That's thirty percent. Okay. I, I like those. Uh, that percentage of usage. All right, I'll, I'll take those numbers. And actually, Davis Library is really wonderful where you're stationed. And so, let's talk about libraries. I think some people may think that libraries are outdated, but I think they're more important than they've ever been. Absolutely, I, I think that although. There's a lot of digital information out there. Everything is not available on the World Wide Web. Everything is not indexed by Google. Mm. And I think that makes libraries more important because librarians and archivists are deeply committed to acquiring, preserving, and making accessible high quality information. And and you need that touch and you need mm-hmm. expertise to be able to identify the good information that is really important and relevant for the community to be good citizens but mm-hmm. also for academics to be great researchers and also for students who need to understand the difference between good information and mm-hmm. bad information. Yes, yeah, so in, in actuality it sounds like what you're saying is that libraries are more important. Well, they are extremely important now because yeah. we have so much information. It's a water hose. There's too much information, and a lot of it is bad. <laughs> it's, just, it's really bad information. The proliferation of fake news, and um, the people need to be able to understand how to differentiate information. And I think to be successful students, you really do have to do that. To be able to be a, a voter, mm. you need to be able to understand um, when information is credible when it's timely, when it's accurate. And nowadays it's becoming difficult. I mean, you really have to have a special set of skills to be able to distinguish digital information. Mm. And it's also a lot of the information we see now is visual. Mm-hmm. And, and I think people also have to understand how to interpret that information, how to interpret data, and how to interpret this digital information that's really proliferating and I think that uh, we call it information literacy, we call it digital literacy, mm-hmm. we call it data literacy, but that's really what libraries have been doing for decades. And I think now we, we, will, we continue to do it. And now that 
information is digital, we really have focused in that regard on on that digital ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And as a discipline, how do you think that transition has happened? Do you think that's been a nice transition of embracing the digital? Um, Do you think, well, actually, and I I mentioned that because I know that when industries go or disciplines go through transition, that can be very challenging of um, figuring out is this is this still what we what we how we identify what library is and what it does and sometimes a new technology can completely disrupt or ruin that whole process or that sense of community and what we do and who we are yeah i mean disruption is exactly the right word to use <laughs> because if i look at my library system here it was set up and designed for print books mm-hmm. and so the spaces are designed around print books the staff were hired to process print books and the technology was designed for print books. And, and so now we have this disruption where the internet has completely transformed that process to where now we are focusing so much more energy on uh, the technologies and servers and things to house the electronic information mm-hmm. that our scholars desperately want to use. So. That transition has been taking place, I would say, over the past 25 years. And I still think we're still working through some of those um, transitions because it's, I mean, it's been completely transformative and and disruptive, as, as I said before. And the spaces are, I think, the biggest challenge right now is... There's so many um, ebooks that we purchase. In fact, mm-hmm. we're purchasing more ebooks than ever, millions of ebooks a year. Mm-hmm. And and then we have this physical um, print footprint of books, and you know those have to be managed and those have to be um, accessible. But we also know that the circulation of these print books mm-hmm. is going down cons- consistently year after year. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of challenges and a re-envisioning of space. Uh, I think sometimes libraries can feel like a, a Starbucks without coffee. <laughs> and that most people, when they come to libraries, are using spaces as gathering places, as places to study, as a quiet place to focus, and a place that's accessible and free. And probably, and I'm not just free from um, renting, like renting the space, but it's also free from a sense of propaganda. So when I think about whether I want to go to a coffee shop or a library, a lot of times the library is more favorable to me because I'm not nothing's being sold to me. It's a space that I, I feel more welcome in and I feel more uh, that this is a space for me to learn and engage in comparison to this is a space I have to buy into to, to take part in. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I love the fact that you feel that way. <laughs> well, I love libraries. <laughs> and so what I would say is I think you're absolutely right. We're a common good. And I do believe that libraries in general democratize learning. And so you're right. When, when you come here, we're not trying to sell a particular viewpoint or perspective. We really believe that our job is to gather and make accessible information. And then you have to decide how you want to use it. And so... This library is filled with all kinds of books. There's, there are all kinds of information that would offend everybody. You know? <laughs> and that's exactly the way it's supposed to be. There's a lot of offensive materials, but we don't pick just the good things and the happy things. We pick 
and select carefully mm -hmm. materials that we think scholars would want to use now and into the unforeseeable future. And so we're always looking towards the future of what is it that scholars are going to want to study 10 years from now, 50 mm -hmm. years from now, even 100 years from now. So this idea of being accessible, inclusive, um, also a place to inspire, a place for entertainment, a place for people to contemplate separately but together is really important. And, and I think that's a big transition we've made, which is you don't have to be here, but a lot of people choose to be in the library because they have the expertise of the librarians, um, which is adjacent to them. Mm -hmm. Many cases, there are coffee, um, there's cafes. We don't <laughs> yeah. have a cafe yet, but I'm working on it. <laughs> yes. um, but there's also just a, you know, being interdisciplinary and being together is something that I think inspires students more than anything. It's like you're in a space where other people are studying, people who are aspiring to graduate, people who are learning and thinking deeply about a, a lot of important issues of the day. So libraries have always been that democratizing space that I think are really empowering to, to people of all ages. Yes, and this is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk with you and talk about the libraries because I wanted to remind people of how important that is and, and how pervasive this idea of the library is and how needed it is. When we're in a university setting, I think it's very easy to take the library for granted in comparison to the public space where libraries, or at least the physical space for libraries, is not always uh, respected <laughs> or maintained. And so as, a, as the um, thinking about how we think about library spaces and what the library does, um, let's put in the academic context. So how do you actually choose eBooks or, or, or any new uh, any new media for the library of UNC? Well, I think nowadays the process for selection is very different. And so, you know, 30 years ago, librarians actually picked every book and picked every journal. And, wow. And now that's, that's just not possible. <laughs> so we have technologies in place that allow us to select thousands of items at once. And so on one hand, we're not individually selecting things. But on the other hand, there's a lot of technology and information out there that allows us to do a really good job of selecting many, many more items mm. without um, spending huge amounts of time and resources to do so. And that frees up librarians to do other things that are really important. So that the way we acquire is very different. And I think the other part of it is that we have done a really good job of being seamless. And so a lot of students tell me that they don't use the library, but they're at they're in their dormitory mm. or they're at their apartment mm -hmm. and they're accessing the resources that we spend millions of dollars on. So they're, so. they're using the <laughs> library and they have no idea that they're they're downloading articles that we paid for. <laughs> That's like the equivalent of you know, a teenager saying like, oh, I hate my parents. They're just always in the way. And then, you know, then they drive off the car that they paid for <laughs> and use the money that they gave them to go to the mall with the clothes they already bought for them. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a very like, good okay. analogy. Mm -hmm. I like that. <laughs> yeah, not to, yeah. <laughs> Some people might not be, you know, I'm not a teenager, but maybe <laughs> we are sometimes with our resources. Um, but one thing I could just add yeah. is that I think for the, 
academic and researchers in general, I think that um, libraries play that important role of obviously building those collections. So buying the journals, buying the books that you need, but also libraries have transitioned to really thinking about data quite mm -hmm. a bit. And so we think about how scholars use, create, and store data as part of the research enterprise. And so we really want to be part of that entire ecosystem. And so that begins with data collection, data visualization, data science, data analytics, all those things that have data in front of them. Mm -hmm. So we're part of that ecosystem so that we're not just focused on when you publish your article, we'll buy it from, mm -hmm. you know, we'll buy it once it's published in a journal. Mm -hmm. Like we really want to be part of the entire data research life cycle, or not just data research life cycle, the life cycle that scholars go through. And, um, and I think that's a big shift because we were really coming in at the end and saying, okay, now you're published. We're going to buy that journal that just published your article. Mm -hmm. And so it's a little more complicated and data is king right now. And we really are very focused. And so the types of librarians I hire now are data analysts, data visualization librarians, data curation wow. librarians, data management librarians. I mean, literally, those are the people we, we hire now because data be, has become such an integral part of research. And whether you're in the humanities, social sciences, or the sciences, and so we have been providing a large amount of services, I would say, over the past seven years dedicated to data management and curation. I love this point. There are a few questions I want to talk about. So one, we're definitely going to get to um, the, the purchasing, so the economy uh, of doing this type of uh, curation um, and how that works in academia. And I wanted to also talk about um, what differences, if there are any, and how humanities versus STEM people use the library or, or think about how they use the library. Yeah, those disciplinary differences are in many ways are very different, but then sometimes I think they're not as different as people think. <laughs> so I could say that the humanists and the people in the arts rely on the library a lot. And in particular, they, they rely on our services and, and the work of our archivists and librarians. And so, for example, mm -hmm. if we take special collections, and so we have Wilson Library Special Collections, which is one of the best special collections in North America. And certainly the history of the South is mm -hmm. all here at the University of North Carolina. I didn't know Chapel that, here. but that makes sense. Yeah, it's, it's all here. And so we have these really close relationships with faculty who bring their classes in three days a week. And they are working on building exhibitions and um, they are doing research with primary resources. And writing papers and so that's a, a case where if a classroom is coming in two or three times a week you can imagine that's resource intensive <laughs> and, there, right, and there might be three librarians working with that one class for an entire semester mm -hmm. and so i would say that generally the humanists really rely on the librarians and the services heavily and i would say on the other hand i would say the stem mm -hmm. folks are heavily dependent on the um research that we're able to purchase and so the journals and mm -hmm. that we buy are heavily used by the stem professions but i don't know if they come in and physically engage with the librarians as much as the humanists 
And I think they should. So I'll give an example for people who, just to remind you, I am a, a biomedical engineer. I work in the School of Pharmacy now. And literature reviews or writing a review paper is a very common thing now. Because um, you, there's many advantages. You may give that as an um, introductory ex, um, experiment or an introdu introductory exercise for an introductory student, a first-year student. Um, you may be writing a review paper, which is really just to establish, here's what I think about the field. The other thing is papers come out so frequently <laughs> that we rely on review papers to tell us what just happened in the last year. So a lot of review papers come out, and I find that people still use this method for researching their review papers, which is I'm going to spend a day and look at all the papers I read. I'm going to take notes on it, and I'm going to hope I remember where that source came from when I start writing. Or maybe you're using Mendeley or EndNote, and you're trying to keep track of all the papers that you personally saw. And I think that's not the best way because there's just too much literature out there. You're really going to miss something. You're going to bias your um, sample size, which is based on who do I know and who do other people know, which is more about reputation and school ranking, if you really think about it. And mm -hmm. also, I'm going to cite someone who I know is important so they didn't know who I am, right? So there's lots of reasons to write a review paper. But I would encourage people to find out who the specialist is in their field in the library because this is a way of making sure I've captured all the data. So I just last year was thinking about a new topic and I wanted to know if someone had actually done it before and I didn't find it, but I didn't want to be the only one. That's not good. So I went to the librarian and she's an expert in searching for things and I had no idea. Like when I search in Google, the most that I do is maybe capital and, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Apples and oranges, you know, that <laughs> I don't really do a lot of the other things, maybe an asterisk at the end. And she was able to help me find papers I didn't know how to find. She was helped me to search. She was able to work in that. And if you, this could be a really collaborative environment where you could actually write a review paper and have the librarians as co-authors. And you could make your data go from, here's a review of what I found, to here's a comprehensive overarching review with data. How many papers were published in each year? How does the terminology that we use change over time? Uh, so I encourage people to do that. And I know I'm, I'm talking too long. I'm gonna let Dr. <laughs> Westbrook talk. But I think it's important for people to appreciate the, the linguistic human history side that they can add to the STEM because we are people and we change you know, over time as well. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> Law and sorry, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> no, I think that's awesome. Like you talk about this review process and um, sometimes people refer to it as systematic reviews and that's really an important process that librarians are just experts in. And mm -hmm. so I think a lot of our scholars don't realize is that if you work with a librarian, you will save time. You yes. will just be much more efficient and comprehensive. And so with these systematic reviews, we have librarians, primarily in the health sciences, who are really integral in studying a specific area and being able to document what's been published about it. Mm -hmm. Because when we look at why we're here and what universities do, it's about building on the knowledge of others. So. So I'm really proud of the fact that not only are librarians 
an integral part of systematic reviews, and, and they're common in social work and other areas, mm-hmm. of course, not just STEM, but they um, are integral in working with physicians. And so we have librarians who are meeting with physicians before surgery, and so that the physician has, or the surgeon has the information that they need before they go into that surgery the next day. And so they're in that conference with the team providing knowledge and or providing information so, so that they can be successful. And I think that's one of those things that people don't know about. Right, and, that's exciting. Yeah, and I think people don't realize is that information has a certain structure and librarians understand that structure. <laughs> and so it's called controlled vocabularies. Mm-hmm. It's like these Boolean operators mm-hmm. you mentioned. Um, these are things that we, we just know how to use really well. And I think a lot of scholars tend to do research the way they did in graduate school, mm-hmm. not realizing that the technology is changing and that there are much more robust tools out there that can help them be much more efficient. Um, and so I think the library really specializes in, in that, you know, being able to identify information much faster, more comprehensively, and then also identifying ways to um, store it so that you can get to it. So it depends. Sometimes you want to use Mendeley. Sometimes you want to use Zotero. I mean, there's so many mm-hmm. tools out there. And again, that's part of the problem is there's so many tools out there. Yeah. And so librarians can often help you decide if you're trying to do X, this is the tool I would use. If you're trying to do Y, this might be a better tool. But at the end of the day, we don't necessarily focus on, we don't push a certain tool. We really try to um, avail you of the opportunities and the options that you have. And then you're more informed to make a better decision on how you can be a better researcher. Yeah, I, I love this. And I this is becoming a PSA for libraries. <laughs> and I really hope that you rethink how you think about your literature search, your literature review, how you even write a review paper that you want to publish because these are very important, really great resources that we have. I, I mean, I always go to the library for help. Um, so maybe um, let's talk about, and, and last, I do think, I do get the impression that STEM people underutilize these resources because there's a perception that the library is for the humanities. And I think the library if you, is for STEM as well. It always was, mm-hmm. but especially in this new data age. There's a lot of synergy there, and we're not experts on everything. So let the experts do what they do well. Let's talk about something that the STEM will know about, which is academic publishing and the major corporations like Elsevier, where we get our papers from. And uh, I think every person has had the experience of trying to find a paper and then realizing that your your university doesn't have that paper. And you're like, ah, who has this paper? Where can I find it? And it turns out it's a very expensive enterprise. So can, can you talk about what that's like? Um, I'm trying to figure out what the actual question is, but <laughs> um, maybe talking about why or how is it so expensive to get all these papers? Because I will say as a student, when I was a graduate student, it didn't occur to me that this was expensive. Mm-hmm. Because I'm thinking it must be more cheaper. It must be cheaper than um, print because you don't have to print anything or distrib- distribute it. And now that I'm publishing and I'm, oh wow, it's 5000 to have my journal article published. And it's more if I put it in color. And we're thinking it's all digital. Why does this cost more? So can you help people understand what is actually happening here? Sure. Um, I think the first thing I have to say is 
if we take the example of North Carolina Chapel Hill, we're a big research one university. Mm -hmm. And so the publishers have a certain array of prices for research one universities. And so we are often charged by the amount of students we have. Wow. So okay. So we have, I don't know, about 30,000. We'll just say 30,000. That's mm-hmm. probably not the exact number. But we're also charged based on our research enterprise. And so we have a $1.3 billion enterprise. Um, and so when you are playing at this level, you tend to pay more. And so, for example, we are going to pay more than Elon University or Appalachia State because mm-hmm. our enterprise, because we generate so much research here and because we have so many students, that's part of the cost. So that's the first thing. Nonetheless, I would say that despite that um, those categories that these publishers assign, we are being charged exorbitant rates for research. And we have some journals that cost $40,000 for one journal. Wow. You know, we have journals that cost $20,000. We have journals. And so... And is that per year? Per year, yeah. And so as a researcher, you really don't have any visibility to these costs. And I think that's a problem. And that's something we certainly need to work out. Now, fortunately, most of our journals aren't $40,000. I think, you know, probably the average cost of a journal is, you know, in the low thousands. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's still, that's a lot of money. And Mm -hmm. and so... There's a lot of journals. Oh, yeah. It's a lot (laughs) of journals. So I think... um, the, the big challenge that we have is that these publishers are able to set the price for these journals and libraries really don't have a lot of um, power to understand how those costs are created. So for example, even as a scholar, when you decide to publish a, in a journal and they wanna charge you an APC or article po- processing charge or publication charge, mm-hmm they can make up whatever price they want to charge you and they dictate the value. And so as a researcher, you have no control whether or not you're paying $2,000 APC, a $300 APC, they dictate the price and you can't go back and say, Oh, I'd rather pay a thousand. And they'll say, you're, you know, that just, yeah. that just doesn't no happen. So I think there's a big problem in that this market has no end. There will always be research. There will always be more research. Every year, there are more journals mm-hmm. created and articles published year after year after year. And so these publishers know this, and they have been able to monetize knowledge. And I and that concerns me quite a bit. Yeah. And then one thing I would say is, in this whole process, there are certain publishers that are dominating certain areas and certain disciplines. And that's quite concerning. So you look at somewhere like Taylor and Francis, which is largely known for the social sciences. Mm -hmm. It is dominating the social sciences right now. And so we have to ask that question, is it fair, is it wise to let one publisher dominate a discipline? Is it wise? Is that what we want research um, to look like? And I I would say... And does that change research that we do? Absolutely. I think... Um, when you have one publisher dominating a discipline, I think you, you have to start looking at the metrics and how they influence the impact factors and the H indexes and these other metrics that we all um, use as proxies for quality. And 
that's to me is the biggest concern is once Mm. you control it, then you can start to do certain things that can increase the impact factor artificially. Yes. And that's that's a major problem because a lot of decisions are made based on the presumed quality of the journal you know which is the quality of the article Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that is that's a slippery slope that I think we need to be careful about yes this the CNS papers sell nature and science that's the number one question I get asked do you have one of those papers because if you do you think you're gonna get a, a faculty position or you're more likely to do this your grants are more likely to go through and it's this culture where Per, these are, this is a pervasive um, idea. Simultaneously, people also say, oh, but to get a paper in nature doesn't mean that your science was good. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of asterisks around that as well, and we carry both notions with us. So we simultaneously are envious, and um, we want that coveted nature cell science paper, but we also realize that that work is, one, uh, I think there's, data that suggests that nature science papers are more likely to have retractions done because they're so high risk, high reward, they aren't always fully proven or follow-up experiments could, could debunk some of that. And we also know that some people are just very good at making a science cell or nature paper, not because the research is good, but they're very formulaic. And so if you're good at that formula, if you've got the right infrastructure, if you've got the right writers behind you, and that could be that the, the investigator having that and that talent that they either innately have or have honed or they're hiring someone to do it, you, you get there. And so it really does boggles my mind. I think it makes everyone feel crazy, but it's also something that people still participate in. Well, I would say just a couple things to that. I think mm-hmm. first, um, peer review is, is um, problematic. Yes. And it is not the most equitable process. There are certain people that get to peer review more than others. Mm-hmm. And and I think most researchers don't have a lot of time to do peer review in a robust mm-hmm. way. So we already know that there are problems with peer review. So that's right. number one. The second thing I would mention is the incentives seem to be out of whack and I think all you have to do is look at the reproducibility problems we have mm-hmm. and that people are incentivized to publish and, you know, or their parish. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the, what hurts or what is one of the negative consequences of that is people do not publish negative results. People yes. do not, um, they, instead of taking that time and doing some research in their local community that will really make a difference, they are spending their time publishing, um, you know, cranking out articles, not because they are a contribution, but because they know they can get them published. Yes. And so this like salami, would call salami publishing, people just crank and they take one article and then they revamp it and they publish another article. Oh, it's, yeah. like a, it's like an equation. Mm-hmm. This is really a problematic. And I think um, that I, I think a lot of scholars know that there are some challenges with this, with this model, but their goal is to get tenure. Yes. So, and their goal is to get positions and to get promoted. And so I just feel like the incentives are all out of whack right now. And I think that we do have a big problem because universities and the libraries in these universities, we can no longer afford to buy it. So if you're in a, in a profession or area like pharmacy, we already know that the top journals in pharmacy are all Elsevier journals. 
Mm-hmm. And and if the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill can't afford it, I imagine that there are a lot right. of other universities that can't afford it. And so we're at this point where you have to be at an elite university to be able to read Elsevier journals, right? And, and that's, that's a problem. Yeah, that's a major problem. <laughs> There's a lot of great scholars who are at small institutions who will, who don't have access to this research. And I think that, that worries me. I think the global South does not have mm-hmm. access. You have, you know, South America and you have... Um, Africa and parts of Southeast Asia and China that do not have access. And and I think that is a major problem too, especially given that we know that, you know, there's big science and that Mm -hmm. you need to work with scholars from all over the world and professions. And if only a certain amount of people have access to the journals, that's a problem. Germany, they do not have Elsevier. Germany, Most of the research universities in Germany have canceled the Elsevier contract. And so... Yeah, let's talk about yeah. the, the fight. It seems like there's a fight back. Mm-hmm. And people are trying to find ways. To, how do you fight back when you need these journals? And they actually do need you. Mm-hmm. So how is that fight back looking? Well, it's challenging. I mean, the, the <laughs> University of California kind of took the first shot and it's canceled right. it. Um, but... Elsevier has not cut off those journals yet, so it's really hard to determine what the consequences are until they actually cut it off. As and in so, lower the prices or remove those journals? No, they're still accessible. Like The University of California is not paying for them, yet mm-hmm. Elsevier is allowing them to use those, to, to have access to those oh, journals. Oh, interesting. Okay. Now, Germany, on the other hand, most of the top in- institutions, including Max Planck, do not have access and so what they're doing is they're they're using interlibrary loan and there are few institutions in Germany that actually have Elsevier journals and so they're working with them um, so interlibrary loan is becoming one of those tools that institutions are using because I can't buy everything mm-hmm. so if I can't buy it Maybe maybe Duke has it, or maybe mm-hmm. uh, Michigan has it, or you know. This is like early Napster almost. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, another version of this. Well, like mm-hmm. we are going to get it ourselves, yeah, and, and so, share it. Yeah, and I think the whole idea of fighting back. And so, one thing I could say we're doing is we're no longer signing non-disclosure agreements, mm-hmm. and and so in the past, and we thought that we were getting good deals, and in exchange for that good deal, we would sign a non-disclosure agreement and that means we can't tell anybody how much we paid for anything wow i didn't know and, this was happening yeah and so even if you know someone at duke or nc state said hey you know we want to get these journals how much did you pay and i said well i can't tell you so we've decided that that's just not right we're a public institution now of course if you really want to know you can you can submit a freedom of information um, request to get that information but i don't believe you should have to jump through hoops to find out what's going on um, at this institution. We're a public institution, and that information should be transparent. Mm-hmm. So that's one way of fighting back, and I believe that once libraries stop signing these non-disclosure agreements, we will actually be able to make the costs of these journals more transparent and get fair prices. Because I, I can assure you that the price I'm paying for the New England Journal of Medicine is probably different than the price that Duke is paying different than what Michigan's paying. And should it be? They really shouldn't be. It's the same production cost. It does not cost Mm -hmm. any more for the University of North Carolina to license the New England Journal Mm -hmm. of Medicine versus 
you know, another one. Yeah. And, and I mean, one thing I have to say is that they're really, you know, I want to be clear that I'm not talking about all, you know, places that publish because there's certainly learned and scholarly societies that are nonprofit who um, are doing great work. I'm, I'm largely referring to companies like Elsevier, Taylor and Francis, um, Wiley, Springer Nature. These are the places that are monetizing knowledge at exorbitant rates. I mean, uh, Taylor and Francis has a profit margin of 37%. Wow. Amazon's is 2%. <laughs> Amazon's 2%. Amazon. <laughs> Taylor and Francis is 37 Wow. That is twice, that's three times as much mm-hmm. as Apple and Google. Wow. Right? So Elsevier has a 30, I believe, 38% profit margin. This is, this is not... Um, they are making a lot of money, mm-hmm. millions of dollars off of us. And I take extra offense to um, the work that goes into this. So let me explain what I mean. I submit a journal as a scientist, an article to a journal. Mm-hmm. They send that out to people who peer review it. And then for they, free. For free. Right. And then they give comments. And so um, because I have humanities friends, I know there's a difference in editing. <laughs> editing means something. Um, so it's not just the, you can be a line edit or it could be something that contextually makes it better to read. And so none of that, to a large extent, that doesn't happen in scientific publishing. So the only comments are you really get back as far as editing would be the peer review said they didn't like your article for these reasons. And we agree with them. And then that's it. Either you fix, either you get rejected or you get accepted and they say this is good enough. But in terms of let's help make that story make sense, let's curate what we're actually publishing, let's help make your article actually read better and present better, let's make the figures right, that doesn't happen. And that's where I would have expected, okay, this is why it costs so much. But if it really is a model where I give you a a PDF, someone looks at that PDF and says whether the science was good, and more or less that same PDF is going to be the thing that you print, with some extra label slapped on, that's not really mm. editing to me. And yeah. I know this. I know that's an unpopular opinion. Some people will say, "Well, no, editors choose which science is good." And and I'm like, but but you know, other editors. If I were going to New York Times, if I were going to, and even a universe, some other place, there'd be actual editing or a more broad definition of what editing means. No, you're you're really <laughs> tapping into so now some I'm upset. problems. Yeah, because. It varies, and I think that um, what's most egregious is that, say like you're a scholar at your Carnegie Mellon University, mm-hmm. you, <laughs> you are um, paid to do research, you do your research, you submit it to a journal, you give it away to the journal, right? You mm-hmm. peer review it for free, and then you sell it back to the library. You sell it back to the university. Oh my God, we are selling it back. Right. So this is like, <laughs> we can't even go straight to you. Right. So this is what we call a gift economy. Mm. Elsevier and Taylor Francis and Springer, they get the content for free. Now, of course, they do add value in, in the editing and they set up systems and the, you know, the manuscripts and all that stuff. They figure out ways to, to make it, um, to facilitate it. So mm-hmm. I'm not saying they don't add value. My question is how much value do they add and is it worth the millions of dollars they're charging? Mm-hmm. And does it lead to high quality science? Mm. That's the big, and that's the thing that you're bringing in is how do we know when this peer review system is robust, this one isn't, 
it's, you know, it's like I said, it's inequitable. I know there are definitely problems with, um, you just look at gender and peer yes. review. I mean, there's some really you know, questionable <laughs> yes. practices that are happening. And from my perspective, the, the research of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill should be available to the world. Mm-hmm. And it's not. You have to be at an elite institution to read it. You can't read the, the research that's coming out of this great university if you're at a university in Ghana mm-hmm. or if you're at a small community college. It just And even the, worse, if the data came from Ghana already. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> that's or, another yeah. problem that's happening. Or you're a patient. You, are, mm. you have a health condition and you want to be able to read what's going on in the New England Journal of Medicine, but you don't, you don't have access to it. And you're a citizen of this state, and you don't have access. This and your taxpayer dollars. Your are taxpayers for are paying for this state as well as the NIH. By the way, right. the the citizens of this country pay for the NIH and the NSF and all these other agencies that fund research. Yet, as a taxpayer, you do not have access to that. That to me is fundamentally unfair and equitable and unjust. And I think that we have to figure out ways to right this system so that the taxpayers who fund it have a way of getting access to it because some of this actually is you could save lives yeah do you think the um preprint what do you think the preprint mm. uh phenomena is doing for this and i know some fields have had preprint long before like i think physics and astronomy mm-hmm. uh, and math that was that was actually their gold standard it was the pre the archive but what do you think uh this preprint will actually do I think it is promising, and I think we we have to see it spread more. Mm-hmm. And like you said, there's just some areas that, um, like you said, the physics. I mean, they've been the archive has been around for over ten years, mm-hmm. and it is actually the premier repository, and that's where physicists go first. Mm-hmm. And um, and it has become a standard for them. And but I I would say that there are some other areas, um, for example, the life sciences. I think have gotten um, much better in this regard. And um, you have, I mean, there's just so many different disciplines that have gradually taken on this idea that um, one, preprints are available in a much more timely way. Mm -hmm. And then two, it's open and available. And so one of the things that people um, don't realize is that when you open up your published research, more people read it. And more people read it, more people cite it. Mm-hmm. More people cite it. Impact factors. So I think and you can really talk about yeah. what came first, right? Because in a we, way that with journals, you you can, but not. Yeah. And I think people at first are like, "Oh my goodness, if I put my preprint out there, someone's going to steal my ideas." Or actually, it, that's not really the case. And I think once you write a paper, you instantly own the, the copyright, right? Mm-hmm. The problem is. A lot of scholars give their copyrights to the publishers. Mm. And so that's why the preprints are so successful, because you basically retain your rights, your intellectual property rights to that article, and then you put it out there for the world. But what happens is with these other journals, that's not the case. You often, when you when they say, hey, your paper's accepted, congratulations, they send you a contract, and it's often very restricted, and they take your rights. Mm-hmm. And so what we need our scholars to do is to do not give up your rights. You can publish in that article and keep your rights. Which ultimately means uh, it needs to be valued in the tenure and hiring promotion process. It needs to be valued right. in grants. 
And I know that the NIH is now accepting preprints. Oh, absolutely. So this is really exciting. But all, it, and then we have to make sure that people understand that that's accepted. But mm. I'm, I'm hopeful about that part. It's quality. I mean, open research is quality research. They're still peer-reviewed. Whether or not in the preprints, eventually the article gets peer-reviewed, mm -hmm. right? But I think that um, people just tend to have this stigma associated with, with these items because yeah. they're saying, oh, they're not peer-reviewed or they're not high quality. Yeah, they absolutely are. Because um, you still don't want to put something out in the world that's not at least 190% right. polished. That makes you look bad. People right. will read it. And oftentimes you'll have the preprint and then you can get the polished, edited version available too. Mm -hmm. But the fact is we write to be read. And <laughs> yes. I think um, that a lot of these preprints are good enough and that you get your ideas out there faster. We all know how long this process can go. I've been, I've submitted journals and you know, I'm waiting six months later. It's sitting on somebody's desk. <laughs> it can oh, be a God. long process. And you're wondering what's going on. And then once you get it back, you're wondering if they read the same article. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. I think um, it depends on the, 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 the discipline, but I think preprints are a wonderful um, alternative to disseminating it in a journal that like only relying on journals to disseminate your content mm -hmm. that you are disseminating it yourself and you're taking control of the dissemination process i think that's very empowering yeah and you own the rights you keep your copyright that's i think empowering as well it'll be interesting to see if universities could do this as in we have our own uh preprint archive of research that comes out of our institution and you can submit it to us because mm -hmm. grant, you know, NSF, NIH, you can make some rationale for that. But say, if you want anything that came out of the UNC Chapel Hill, we can actually give that to you. Yeah. I mean, we have the, what we call the CDR, which is the Carolina Digital Repository. Most libraries at most institutions have what we call these repositories. So that's one thing that we try. This is an infrastructure that we have put up. So that faculty who are submitting grants and mm -hmm. you just want a safe place to put your article and your data, you can put it in these repositories. Mm -hmm. And I think um, sometimes you put it in PubMed Central or sometimes you can put it in other places, but we have a site that is free for you to deposit your information because at the end of the day, we just want your articles and the and the research of this university to be preserved and available to the public. Mm -hmm. So repositories are one way to do that. And again, you could just contact um, the library and we'll help you deposit your article and your data set if you um, want to find a different way to disseminate it. Actually, that's really valuable to note because a lot of grants are now requiring that they have access to the data mm -hmm. that you published. And I think many researchers don't know how to do that or they're open to it, but they want to make sure their data is safe. One, so they don't want, they want something that they can still have some sort of protection or reliability about being protected. So a completely third party may not feel as safe as my university, which should be protecting my research. And then the other thing is there's so many different types of data um, that it becomes mm -hmm. challenging to figure out which resource to use. So if I um, do microscopy, I'm going to have a lot of uh, JPEG files or a lot of those mm -hmm. big TIFF files or or maybe I do flow cytometry and so you, so it could be 
data that's in an Excel spreadsheet or, or, or some other type of text file, or it could be these picture files that can take up gigs and people trying to figure out how to put all of that data in the same place is challenging. Yeah, I mean, there's so many, what we call just, these are research assets, mm -hmm. right? And they come in so many different forms and like sales spreadsheets, um, image files. I mean, there's software. Mm -hmm. And so we have a repository that's largely agnostic and we just want whatever you're creating. Because I, I'm sure many of you know, you know, in graduate school, you may have self-archived some article. You know, good luck trying to find it right now. I mean, there's, <laughs> I you will get a 404 statement. It's hard to find. Like, the stuff you posted, yeah. I have things that I've created, and I don't know where they are. They were online. And if you work with a library, you know, we're obsessed with preservation. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, we will make sure that that article is available 10 years from now. Like, we will do the work to make it viable, whether it's an article, whether it's a TIFF file, whether it's a piece of software, we really try to focus on making that item accessible in the future. And we often think in terms of like centuries, so like 500 years, <laughs> like wow. we wanna make sure things are available in hundreds of years from now. And of course, you know, I don't expect scholars to feel that way, but librarians and archivists, that's exactly how we roll. And um, if you don't want to be bothered, just send it to us and we'll make sure it's in the repository. And then it's available. And then you get a DOI and then you can use that DOI and you can mm. submit it to NSF or you could put it on your resume. But that DOI is going to be safe. You don't have to worry about it disappearing in three or four years. It'll be there. So, you know, my next question is going to be 500 years from now. <laughs> what are we going to be doing? <laughs> Wow. <laughs> you know, I, I actually, I, I can probably go out about three to five, but um, what, okay. what I can that say, good, three to five. I know, but what I could say is um, in 500 years, well, let me back up. <laughs> Libraries have been around for 5,000 years, mm. right? Mm -hmm. So before there were universities and all these wonderful things, there were libraries. And I know 500 years from now, this university will be in existence and this library will sure. be in existence, but it will be a very different kind of university and a very <laughs> different kind of library. And I think that um, the fight will be over digital and how do we preserve digital content? Mm. Um, as you know, like I have photographs that were from two iPhones ago that mm -hmm. have, are hard to find. And so I think libraries will double down on that mission to preserve the history and the content of of human knowledge. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what we're fundamentally set up for. So, but I don't know how it's going to look. I don't know exactly <laughs> what things are going to be, but libraries are going to be around. And, and I think um, if we've lasted for 5,000 years, I think in the digital realm, we can last another 5,000 years. And, um, and I think we just have to continue to retain trust. Libraries mm. are extremely trusted institutions. Yes. And I don't see why that would change. So Amazon should never buy libraries. <laughs> yeah. We need the trust to be there, so we need big companies to not be a part of this system. Yeah. Okay, maybe. I mean, the thing is... Political opinion. <laughs> I mean, really, I think democracy does rest on information and an informed citizenry. And so that's why I feel so confident that libraries will remain vibrant. And I think there's going to be challenges. I mean, just the funding. We talked about Elsevier. Mm -hmm. um, we talked about like 
undergraduates and students who who have this perception that libraries aren't as relevant as they mm-hmm. really are. And so I've, certainly I have a lot of work to do. And I think my peers, whether they're public libraries or community college libraries, um, all libraries are really thinking about how do we make communities stronger? Mm-hmm. How do we, um, we focus on social justice issues quite a bit. And I think that our goal is to provide important services that help students go out and change the world, that help faculty go out and push the frontiers of knowledge. We help community members um, preserve their history um, in the way that's important for them. So I think that these um, goals, I mean, it's we're mission driven, you know, mm-hmm. and so we have to preserve and we have to do these things that are, are important for scholarship and advancing human knowledge. So you know, we're mission driven. We're going to always do that mission. I don't care what happens. I don't care what the technology happens or changes. We always have that mission to preserve. And, um, and we take that really seriously. That's beautiful. I was actually picturing like Dr. Elaine at age, Dr. Elaine Westbrook at age five, like libraries are great. (laughs) So, I mean, I think this is really great. I kind of want to wrap up the conversation and I just realized we went straight into libraries, which is fantastic. But maybe you want to talk about how you became so interested in libraries or, I don't know, is there something about this journey of process that's really inspired you to get to the point we are now where you're, you're so passionate and clear about the significance of libraries? Yeah, well, I, <laughs> I grew up um, and I went to a, a local public library and it was actually the second library that Andrew Carnegie built. Wow. Yeah, and so it was one of those libraries that had um, a bowling alley and a swimming pool. It was built for mill okay, workers. Okay, <laughs> Yeah, it was built for um, workers in the mills and the steel mills. And and, um, and so I grew up with that idea of going to the library and being a big part of my community. And so by the time I got to undergrad, you know, I went to the library on the first day of class, mm-hmm. and I never left. You know, I went, I, seriously, I never left. I worked in a library my entire undergraduate career. I ended up working in every department of the library. And and so I wanted to be a teacher. And so I went to school to be a teacher. And then I just decided, you know, this isn't, this isn't working out for me. <laughs> so that's when I went to graduate school to focus on libraries and um, got certified and to be a librarian and got my MLIS. Mm-hmm. And then I just started working in some really great universities. Um, so I started off the University of Pittsburgh. I went to Cornell University. I went to the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I went. I worked at the University of Michigan. Mm-hmm. And now I'm at the helm of one of the greatest research libraries in the world. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I could not have asked for a better trajectory. And, and I, as you mentioned, I, you know, I am passionate about libraries and I've been passionate about libraries for the past 25 years. And and I just think it's a great profession, and it's an exciting profession, and it's meaningful. And I, I just, you know, we just had graduation yesterday, and mm-hmm. you get to see, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, how many of those students went to the library? How many wow. of them? <laughs> like, yeah. And I don't know what the number is, but I'd like to think that we played a role in helping a student um, belong to this university. We played a mm-hmm. role in helping a student be well. We played a role in helping them get the journal article they needed. We played a, we played a role in providing a space for them to study in, with quiet um, and no interruptions. 
So, so yeah, so that passion goes back to, you know, being five years old and going to the public <laughs> library, but translated really well into a career that I've, I think is um, really exciting. And one of those professions that um, allows me to be part of the institution, to be a citizen of higher ed, a citizen of a university, and not necessarily be in that tenure track role. <laughs> you know? yeah. I mean, I have an appointment with SEALs, mm-hmm. um, but my primary focus is making sure that this library is relevant and making sure that we are we are achieving our mission. And I think that that is, um, like I said, it is tremendously um, empowering and exciting to be a part of that. And, you know, whether or not we're talking about the history of Confederate monuments or talking about the student experience mm-hmm. on this campus or even making sure that you have the journals you need. We just do a lot for students and it's my job to make our role more visible so that I don't hear students say I don't use the library. You know, yeah, a couple years clearly do. Yeah, when they are obviously using it. So so I have a lot of work to do, but it's it's exciting work to take on. Well, that was amazing. There's no way I could finish that. And I think that was beautiful. I think you should consider podcasting. Oh, wow. You know, (laughs) (laughs) I think you've got the voice, you've got the passion. And I I think what would a, if you were going to have a podcast, what would your library podcast name be? Oh, wow. So you have diva in yours. That's pretty good. I I can't use that. PhD, but yeah. Oh, man. I don't, you know, cool. The cool librarian, the, the, See, this is the thing. I don't know. See, my favorite podcast is Two Dope Queens. Yes, it's so really great. I know. I want to put dope in it, but um, I don't know if I could. I don't know. I'll have to think about that. Mm. But I like I like dope. I like diva. Mm-hmm. But dope, I could diva figure in the library, library stacks. Something about dope and stacks. Okay, we'll think about we'll this. Think of, yeah, we'll, yeah. We'll, we'll think about it. <laughs> but. Um, Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Dr. Westbrook. Is there anything else you want to tell people about um, maybe where they can find your work or follow um, what you're doing or your further thoughts on uh, library systems? Well, there are several ways. I'm a big fan of Twitter. So you can follow me on Twitter at UNC underscore librarian. Um, The library has several Twitter sites that you can look up. So you can look up UNC Library. You can look us up on Facebook. Um, but you can also go to library.unc.edu and you can find a treasure trove of resources that you can connect with. We, we host a lot of events for the community. We are um, a great air-conditioned place in the summer <laughs> oh that you could come to. And again, we just have a lot of cool staff, very talented staff that I'm really um, proud of who are very committed to helping people be successful. So um, so come to our website, follow us on, on social media, and, um, and, you know, just keep trusting in the work that libraries do. That's it. Thank you guys for listening. This is Liz Wayne again, and you can follow the PhDVis podcast on all of our social platforms under at PhDVis podcast, and we will see you next time. Thank you. That was oh, this great. was fun. That was lovely. I'm so glad we got to do this. I, I, I know.